for Latin this morning. Okay, so here we go. What what does this mean? E pluribus unum. Yeah, out of many one. And that used to be our country's motto up until 1956. And basically what it's saying that there's unity and diversity. That out of a diverse country, there's unity. And um, today, maybe not so much, but but at least that's that was the, the ideal that it expressed. Today, we're going to see how central unity and diversity is in the body of Christ in Romans chapter 12. So if you would stand, we're going to read from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, standing in, in honor of God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in our proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Father, it is my plea, my hope, my earnest request of you that you would grant your Holy Spirit to us this morning to cause your word to find its target in our hearts. Give me words to say that make it clear what you want us to hear. Give us ears and hearts to receive all that you have for us today so that we may love Christ more, glorify him more, trust in him more. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what we saw last week in verses 1 to 2 of Romans could be summed up this way. Because of God's mercies, by his great mercies, offer your whole life to God as you are transformed by the renewal of your mind. Offer your whole life to God as you are transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now Paul will begin to tell us what a renewed mind does or doesn't do. What he has to say is important enough that he says, by the grace given to me, I say these things to you. And what he's talking about is his grace of being an apostle. He said back in chapter 1, verse 5, that God has, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So God has given him a grace-filled authority, set up the standard of obedience of the faith for, for, to Christ among all nations. So this is no minor point for Paul. The first thing he says, your renewed mind doesn't do or shouldn't do is to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Instead, you are to think with sober or sensible judgment. Why is Paul concerned about Christians thinking of themselves too highly? Well, he could be talking about generic pride that we're all susceptible to, 
but he's really more specific than that. What he's talking about, or what he's concerned about, is that we assess ourselves in relation to the body rightly, to the church, community of Christ followers, rightly assess our role according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We're not to overestimate or wrongly assess our role in the body of Christ. The first thing to note that he says here is the fact that our assessment of ourselves is to be in relation to the body. So right out of the starting gate, here's how you live a life for God, transformed life, being conformed to the image of Christ, is you evaluate yourself in, in relation to the body of Christ and to, to the church. In other words, we're not on our own in living out this transformed life. We're, we are united to the body of Christ. This is hard for us in, in our culture because we value individualism rather than our identity as part of the community. There are at least two reasons Paul says faith is the measure of how we should think about ourselves in relation to the body of Christ. So one reason is that faith looks to Christ for our identity and not to ourselves, not to our skill sets, not to our talents and abilities, but we look to Christ. We are recognizing that the only reason we are in the body and have anything to contribute to the body is because of Christ and his saving work, which we receive only by faith in him. So faith looks away from ourselves and to Christ. Another reason Paul says faith is the measure of how we think about ourselves is because God has assigned or apportioned to each of us different measures of faith. Yeah, that's what he says. We have different measures of faith by God's design. God has assigned to each of us a unique measure of faith. Faith in Christ is a gift of God, so it's not something we work up, hey, if I just work up with all my strength, my faith, I'm going to be able to serve Christ better. We, we should use our strength to trust in Christ, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about God has assigned to us a unique measure of faith. We have different measures of faith by God's purpose. Is that okay? Do you, does, does that bother you? Jim thinks it's okay. Why does God give us different measures of faith? Well, Paul doesn't tell us, but I think one reason is because it, it requires us to practice loving interdependence valuing the, the diverse ways God has shaped us and designed us to work together. It, it requires us to practice loving interdependence and trusting the way that God has shaped us to work together. God is not an egalitarian. You say, does God have a problem with eagles? God is not an egalitarian. I mean, he doesn't give us all the same resources and, and, and abilities. He's, he doesn't say we all have to have equal abilities and capacities. In Christ, we have equal value, equal worth to God, but having equal value doesn't mean we must all have the same measure of faith. That's why Paul says what he does in verses 4 to 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. It says, For... As in one body, Paul compares the body of Christ to a human body. As our human body, in our human body we have many parts, and they don't all have the same function. We have eyes, we have ears, we have pancreas, we have liver, we have teeth, toes, nose, knees, tongue, 
shoulder, hands, sweat glands, lymph nodes, vertebrae. I wonder which one of you is the pancreas. Interesting to find that out, huh? He says, so as the body is one and has many parts, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and we are individually members of one another. Just the human body has unity and diversity, many diverse parts working together with different functions. So we have unity and diversity in Christ. Each part of our human body contributes to the overall function of the whole. There are no useless parts. There are no body parts that, are, that serve no purpose. Even wisdom teeth are there to keep oral surgeons wealthy. And that's a good thing. Whatever the body does requires the interdependent working of all the parts together. And we know how that, that is in common experience. For a company to work well, for a government to work well, for a nation to work well, um, interdependent parts need to work together. So it is with the body of Christ. In him, believers are all one, though we each have God-given different measures of faith and different functions. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12:18, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. So he's arranged the body of Christ as, he's, as pleases him. It's, it's his design. And then in verse 6, he begins talking about uh, the different gifts that we have. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So there's two grace words. So the, the, the word for gift is charismata, and the word for grace is charis. So you've got these charismatic words. God is, just as God has assigned us different measures of faith, although we are one in Christ, so by his grace, he has given us different grace gifts. So by his grace, he's given us different grace gifts. And just as faith looks to Christ and doesn't credit one's usefulness to the body, to one's own resources and abilities, so the fact that we are gifted by grace for service to the body should keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. That's because these God-given gifts are his enabling of us to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. He says, having gifts, he just says, we all have gifts. We all have these grace gifts. We each have received grace gifts for use in serving Christ and one another. Every passage in the Bible that talks about um, the spiritual gifts, the grace gifts, says we each have them. We each have them. So you read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, and this chapter. Every one of them says we each have grace gifts. How do you know what your gifts are? The scriptures never lay out specific guidelines for discovering your gifts. Yet, clearly, God wants us to use our gifts, so sooner or later we need to know what they are. Could it be so simple as just get involved with the body of Christ and do what you desire and get busy serving, and you're going to find out what works well for you and what doesn't? You're going to find out what you enjoy and what you're effective at and what you're not so effective at and what you don't enjoy as much? It could be that simple. Today we have, um, there, there are different, like, we call them tests, there are questionnaires that you can fill out. Do you do you like doing this? Have you done this before and found it effective? And and they can be helpful. And I've used those before. But I th I think if you if you had to choose between just getting involved in in the body life of the church, and getting busy serving, and taking a test, 
I say just get involved with the body of Christ and, and get busy serving. Get involved sharing life with the body, and, and you're going to find what your gifts are because that's how they did it then. What distinguishes spiritual gifts from Christian virtues that we are each required to do? Because here, Paul says, um, for example, uh, he mentions mercy as a gift. We're all required to show mercy. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 6, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. So what, what distinguishes uh, the gifts from what we're all required to do? Well, uh, gifts are spiritual motivations that give grace to people in, in especially effective ways. So if you have the ability to exercise faith in Christ in, in their exercise and people are built up in their faith in Christ as a result, by your exercise of this grace, then it's probably a gift. You, you enjoy it, you're effective at it, and people are receiving grace because that's what, that's what you're doing. You're channeling grace to people through the use of your spiritual gift. If you um, think your gift is mercy and you visit somebody in the hospital and they say the most merciful thing you could do is, is leave because I'm more miserable now than when you first came, you probably don't have the gift of mercy. People are built up in their faith and receive grace by the exercise of your gift. So what Paul is saying then, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So God, God has apportioned out grace gifts to us. Um, if prophecy in proportion to your faith, use it in proportion to our faith. What is the New Testament gift of prophecy? Well, first, what it's not, it's not specifically uh, about predicting future events. Nor is it being a wild-eyed person shouting on a street corner, holding a sign that says the end is near. You may do that for fun, but that doesn't mean you're a prophet. The New Testament gift of prophecy is speaking something spontaneously revealed by God that we would not otherwise know or speak. But there's significant disagreement today whether that gift still operates. So it's controversial. So let's have some fun. Let's talk about whether it still operates today or not. One view is that the New Testament prophecy involves declaring the very words of God with authority equal to the Old Testament prophets and equal to the words of Scripture. People who hold this view would say prophecy has ceased. We're not continuing to add to the Scripture. If, if, if this gift were still operating, then prophetic words today should be written down and added to the New Testament, and the Bible will just keep getting bigger and bigger. A primary text in support of this view is in Ephesians 2.20, and I may have that up on the screen. There Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This verse doesn't refer to Old Testament prophets because in a few verses later in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul says that the, the mystery of Christ has, was not made known to former generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he's saying currently in his time, the New Testament age, God has been revealing the truth of Christ to the apostles and prophets. So he's saying that the authoritative foundation of the church is, is the apostles and prophets. 
that would seem to put the New Testament gift of prophecy into the category of authoritative, foundational speech on power of Scripture. And if that is the only way this gift is manifest, then it has ceased. You don't keep building the foundation. You build on the foundation. On the other hand, others believe that the exercise of the gift of New Testament prophecy is not inspired in the same way Scripture is. Rather, it is a human explanation of something that God has brought spontaneously to mind. It is different from teaching, and the teaching is based, based upon the text of Scripture, like we're doing now. And um, while prophecy is based on the, the immediate impression that God is directing our thoughts to information that we would not otherwise have known or spoken. How did Paul see prophecy functioning in the church? Well, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Paul says to the church in Corinth, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So to this church, and it was a pretty messed up church, he's exhorting them, earnestly desire that you may prophesy. So all are told to earnestly desire to, to, to prophesy. And the reason he values prophecy is what he says it does in verse 3 of chapter 14, is that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So to say that the church, in a pretty pretty carnal church in a lot of ways, would not make this exhortation to that they should desire to prophesy would not make sense if, if the gift only applied to a limited group of men who spoke with Scripture-level authority. But it would make really good sense if prophecy were a gift that any believer could use to offer spirit-given insights. Addressing specific timely needs and circumstances that God brings to mind for each other's good. So which is it? If those who receive the gift of prophecy are not infallible in their communication or interpretation of what God reveals to them, how do we know what to believe? Well, First Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 5, verses 20 to 21 says, Do not despise prophecies. Don't despise them. Rather, but test everything. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. So it sounds as if some of what comes by way of sharing prophecies is good. Hold fast to that. And if it's not good, then let it go. In other words, the exercising of the gift of prophecy, the exercising of the gift of prophecy is not in the same category with Scripture. It is under Scripture and tested by Scripture, and it is spiritual wisdom informed by Scripture. It's interesting, and in, in, um, I don't have this up on the screen, but an example in the New Testament of a difference in understanding of an application of a prophetic revelation. In Acts chapter 21, you have the disciples who are at Tyre, which today would be Syria. The disciples are urging Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. So they they receive some impression or knowledge from the Holy Spirit, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And a little bit later, it talks about a prophet named Agabus who took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, 
Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. But Paul would not listen to them, and he went on to Jerusalem. So what was going on with that? Was Paul mistaken? Was he wrong to not listen to what the Spirit revealed to these believers? Or were they mistaken in discerning what the Spirit had revealed to them? In this case, it seems that the Spirit revealed to the, these disciples that Paul was going to be uh, imprisoned and bound and held in Jerusalem, and he was. But their interpretation of what his, his friends and fans, their interpretation of what they understood was that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. But Paul's understanding was, because of my mission, and I'm, I'm willing to lay down my life, I'm going to Jerusalem. I believe the scriptures are the inerrant, authoritative word of God. They contain, as Jude says, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The scriptures were finalized with the book of Revelation. We don't add to it with authoritative truth. But I don't see any scriptural basis for the complete cessation of the grace gift of, of prophecy. I just don't see it. The big exception would be that the foundational offices of apostles and prophets who established the scriptures don't continue. Which brings me back to Ephesians 2.20, which says the church was built on the foundation of the, of the apostles and prophets. The term apostles and prophets may refer to one group, not two. That is, apostles who were also prophets. This like uh, Paul says in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11, he talks about pastors and teachers, and, the, and the, the way he phrases it, it's clear that they're one group, pastor-teachers. So what he's saying here is one group is both apostles and prophets. They're the teaching founders of the church. So the foundational office, for lack of a better term, of prophet has ceased. Beyond the foundational office, the gift of prophecy could well be active today and is not equal with Scripture in authority, but is valuable as a spirit-guided expression of something we otherwise would not know or say. It is useful for that specific moment and context and brings conviction or exhortation or consolation for the awakening or strengthening of faith. So we may not all agree on that. I understand that some may not be convinced that the gift of prophecy is still active today. It may be that what one person calls a prophecy is actually um, a moving application by the Holy Spirit of the truth of Scripture to his life. We don't need to agree on whether to call this experience prophecy. I assume that most, if not all of us, have had the experience of sitting under the preaching of, the, of God's Word and felt that some point of the message was so specific to us so getting under our skin, into our lives, that it's like the preacher knew what was going on in our lives. It's like he had first-hand knowledge of what was going on. Was this an on-the-spot gift of prophecy? Or was it just the searching, illuminating work of the, of the Holy Spirit? In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, when the church is, is sharing in prophecy, the hearts, the secrets of the hearts are disclosed. Or you've been in a small group Bible study, 
and someone's praying. And the way that they're praying, it's like they're praying right into your life. And, and there's no way they could have known what was going on in your life. So was this a gift of prophecy? Or was it just, just the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit? I'm far more eager that we are open to the dynamic, sovereign, grace, and truth-filled, searching, illuminating, Christ-exalting work of the Holy Spirit than I am about agreeing about the gift of prophecy. The Holy Spirit who searches the hearts and intercedes for us according to the will of God. I want us to earnestly desire that we would be a spirit-filled community speaking spirit-taught words grounded upon spirit-inspired scriptures. We're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, so we want to completely submit to the work of the Holy Spirit in all that we do. If a person does believe he or she has a deep, specific burden or words for upbuilding and encouragement and consolation that they believe are from the Lord, the qualification that Paul gives is if we have a grace gift of prophecy, let us use it in proportion to our faith. What does that mean? What does he mean, use it in proportion to our faith? Well, it's like Paul said earlier, you are to exercise this grace gift according to the faith granted you by God. Don't presume that because you think you have seen evidence that you have this gift, that you are constantly receiving direct insights from God. Don't start thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. As if every other thought that comes to mind is put there directly by God, as if you are God's appointed mouthpiece. To exercise a prophetic gift according to the proportion of your faith is a Christ-centered faith. Are your insights Christ-exalting and honoring? Are, are the thoughts that you believe God is stirring in your hearts for building up people in the knowledge of Christ and love for him? Do you pray that God would give you discernment to speak only words of grace and truth that strengthen faith and hope in Christ? To use a prophetic gift in a proportion to your faith means you will exercise it in humility. In humility, you will assess whether your insight is based on faith that God has impressed your insight upon you or whether it is from your own imagination and desires. I was talking with my wife about this, and she um, she says she has a couple friends that perhaps have this gift due to their unusually accurate truth insights. She trusts what they say because they have they walk with God, which requires walking by faith in Christ. They don't make wild predictions or claims or declarations. They don't say, God told me to tell you, fill in the blank. Their words of truth have come by faith. On the other hand, John Piper tells of a situation where a, a woman prophesied over him that his pregnant wife would give birth to a daughter, not a fourth son. At that point, they had three sons and no daughter. So she prophesied that his pregnant wife would give birth to a daughter, not a fourth son, and that his wife would die in childbirth. Pretty heavy duty. The Pipers did have a fourth son. They didn't have a daughter by birth, but by adoption. And his wife, Noelle, survived childbirth and is still alive today. So be sure your insights are from the Lord before you share.
in humility, you won't be proclaiming yourself to be a prophet. You won't say, God told me to tell you. Some people sound like they just have a live connection to God all the time. Constantly, God's talking to them. God told me this, God told me that. That's probably more than is really happening. You might say, I think the Lord is leading us this way. Or uh, you might say, I sense the Lord wants you to consider this scripture in your decision or things like that. Or don't preface it at all, but just say it in humble, bold love and submit your words to be tested by others in the body. I'll just say this to uh, any unmarried young ladies or not so young ladies. If a man says to you, God told me that you're supposed to marry me, run the other way. That's not how you did it, right, man? Okay, just checking. Using the grace gift in proportion to your God-assigned faith needs to be for the building up of the body in unity. If you're going to speak words that you believe are from the Lord, it's not to be used in a way that creates divisions or creates needless conflicts and harm. There was a, an African-American Pentecostal woman who I worked with back in my early 20s at Dawkins Products. And she told me I had a calling in my life. Was she using this gift? Or was she just saying what she thought from her own thoughts? It did encourage me to press on in, in devoting my life to serving Christ's church. So pray, pray with me that whether we are all agreed that the gift of prophecy is still active today, that God would grant us powerful working in his spirit to speak timely words of upbuilding, encouragement, consolation, and conviction, that we may grow together in unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity to the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you have arranged for our use, our role in the body of Christ. Thank you, Father, for wisely giving to us each a measure of faith as you have designed us to. I pray, Father, that we would appreciate the differences in the body here at Harvest and we would grow in unified, diverse application of living out your truth. And Father, I pray for the working of your Holy Spirit in our midst, in our community groups, what we do here on Sundays, in our ministries, that, Father, your Spirit would be empowering all that takes place. That you would give us wisdom in how we speak, what we share, what we believe you've communicated to us, put, put on our hearts. Father, I pray that you would give us words that would build up the church. Thank you for giving us the the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints in your word, that your word is the test of all claims to truth wherever they come from. May we hold fast to your word. May we be saturated with your word so that we can speak words that are trustworthy, words of truth and grace, Christ-centered, Christ-filled words, spirit-enhanced, spirit-empowered words. Father, may your word actively do its work in our congregation to bring lost people to 
the saving knowledge of Jesus, to build us up in strength and faith, hope and love. Thank you for giving us gifts of the Spirit. Father, may we wisely trust in your sovereign work in our, in our congregation and speak words of truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Next week we'll cover some other gifts. So come back for more.